0: I realized that you know i have nothing to complain about at all and i'm not going to waste the time or the effort or the money that was put into me to be able to survive i'm lucky to be alive and no matter where i think my day is going or how bad it is someone somewhere has it 10 times worse than i do every single time every single day someone's always got it worse than i do so i have no complaints
1: welcome to the good life central organ podcast where we pursue the good life by helping you pursue yours And a quick thank you goes out to our sponsor, Remax Revolution and Sisters. Remax is the number one real estate company in the world, and Remax Revolution offers new solutions for better results. Go to ILoveCentralOregon.com to find out more. Okay, you ready for this? I'm ready. You ready?
0: I'm ready. I was born ready. You're born ready. Yeah.
1: Where Where is that exactly?
0: Where I was born.
1: Where you're born ready.
0: In a taxi cab.
1: No. That's was probably true. <laughs>
0: Actually, no. It, it was either that or conceived. No, I was uh I was born in Sacramento.
1: Okay. Well, uh, I want to introduce my next guest to the Good Life Central Oregon podcast. The good friend we go uh, I can't say we go way back. We go back. We go back twelve years now, at least. At least, we go back. This is my this is my good friend, and uh, his name is Brett Miller. I first met Brett when I walked into the fire department one day, looking to become a volunteer, and there was some much skinnier guy, with, <laughs> a lot with, <laughs> a lot skinnier guy with with frosted blonde highlights. I still oh, don't yeah. know what that was That's about. Right. Yeah. Absolutely insane. Um It was for the ladies. It was for the ladies. <laughs> and and next thing you know, you went off to spend a lot of time with men, so I'm not quite sure that was the best strategy. Yeah, it, but, I shaved it off. But uh anyway, you were you decided to show me uh show me around and and that was my first foray into Brett Millerism.
0: Yeah, that was a while ago.
1: that, that was 2003. Huh. I only remember that because that's when I started volunteering. <laughs> Next thing you know, uh, Brett's gone off to war, but uh, we're going to talk about that story in just a bit, as Brett would say. Um, so you were born in Sacramento. Yeah. So uh, give us give us the quick synopsis of of early life as Brett Miller.
0: Well, uh, my uh, my folks divorced. Um, when I was, I'd say two, me and my brother were raised by my dad. My dad was a uh, special investigator for the state of California, and he worked for Department of Agriculture. And uh, by the time I was 16, we had moved 21 times. So bouncing all over the place.
1: So that was worse than the military. <clears throat>
0: um, you know, I kind of, I, I did well with it. You know, I didn't mind the change every year. It was kind of like a new school, new friends, new place, you know. I was always the outgoing, you know, and exploring type. So it wasn't that bad for me. Uh, I don't think my brother liked it too much. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it, it did pretty well. And uh, when I was, uh, let's see, I was 14 or 15, and it was on a, uh, a St. Patrick's Day, Uh which is just around the corner. Uh, I was laying on the couch uh, and watching TV and uh, I heard this weird noise and I looked up and there was a big heating register that was right right on the ceiling and it was completely engulfed with flames and insulation and stuff was like dripping. It'd, it'd fall out on fire going, you know, making this sound. And I saw that and I, Whoa! And I jumped up barefoot and I ran out the back sliding uh, door this was a house that our family had literally built by hand all of us and how old were you again uh 14 I want to say and uh ran out to dad and I'm like dad the house is on fire and every event that was coming out was was just a four foot of blowtorch of flames and we watched that house burn down in a matter of 15 minutes from when I left the house to where the fire department rolled up and cooled the slab off. <laughs> yeah. It was gone. And uh, I was watching this fire department and I was like, man, these guys are a joke. You know, I'm You're just
1: adding just, water damage on top of fire damage. It,
0: was, it wasn't even that. They were having a hard time getting hoses out and getting water supply going and this and that. I, I was just, you know, so frustrated watching these guys. So. Immediately, I knew that I could do a better job than that. And that started my whole drive. I knew what I wanted to do really young in life. And that's what I ended up doing. I was the, not only the youngest, uh, but uh, the, uh, I was the youngest volunteer in Oregon history at that point. I don't know if it's ever changed or anything. But I actually started as a volunteer there at 15 years old, uh, Williams fire department. That's in Southern Oregon in between grants pass and Medford. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'd go on calls and I mean, I was maybe 80 pounds soaking wet with my gear on, you know, with your gear on. Yeah.
1: So you were 30, 30 pounds dry (laughs) with no gear. (laughs) I
0: was, you know, super skinny, just nerdy, you know, but, uh, scholastically I knew exactly what my job was, you know, I had to go through the academy just like everyone else was. And, you know, Williams was a very small town, very small department. I think there was maybe 20 volunteers on the roster. Mm -hmm. And uh, was it all volunteer? Yeah, all volunteer, yeah. And uh, that was the start. I mean, I can remember (laughs) I I couldn't even drive, but I had a pager on me. (laughs) So I had a pager, and I'm on the school bus. And I'm, I'm coming back from, uh, it was like a 40, 45 minute drive just from school to our house. And I'm on the bus and my pager goes off and we literally roll right up to this Volkswagen on fire that's at the same spot, but my pager's going off. <laughs> and I kind of stand up and I rip off my shirt, you know, to get the whole Superman thing going. Yeah, I run yeah. to the front of the bus and I told the bus driver, open up the door. And I, I grabbed the fire extinguishers and abc extinguisher off the front of it I went to the back of this uh christy huffman's uh <laughs> volkswagen that was just right down the street from her house and it was a fuel fire over the block you know uh-huh. and i knew well the block's magnesium so i can't put any water on it and there's the neighbors were coming up with a hose and i'm like no you cannot put water on a magnesium fire and I open up this thing, and I see Because every 14-year-old knows this. I, I, uh, well, I was 15 or 16 at the time.
1: Uh, my, I apologize then.
0: So I rip open the back of the Volkswagen, and I singe off the eyebrows, and I hit this thing with the fire extinguisher, and it's done by the time the volunteer department shows up. And I'm back on the bus, and we just drove around it and went home. So that was my... Uh, that was my deal
1: that, that was the beginning of, of well quite the career
0: actually the the really beginning was we had a we had a good size ranch and it was right in the middle of, of fire season and i'm sitting there digging fence posts with my dad uh, post holes and we see this fire start on the other side of our valley and it's literally right there you can almost reach out and touch it and this thing rips up the canyon and then all of a sudden my pager goes off and, you know, there's starting to be aircraft coming in. They're making drops on this thing and, mm-hmm. you know, retardant. And, uh, I dropped that post hole digger and I started running. And, uh, my dad tells me, he says, you're not going to fight that fire. And I'm like, <laughs> Wh- whatever. That's what I do. Got a pager. Hey, <laughs> he says, you don't know how to fight that fire. You're not going to fight that fire until you learn how to do it. And I'm like, I'm, I am a firefighter and, It was just so frustrating for me to sit there and watch everyone drive by waving out of the fire trucks as they're heading to this upper powell creek fire and i can remember it like it was yesterday and all the planes and helicopters and i sat out there just grinding my teeth while i'm watching the night shift go up there clanking tools and i can hear saws going and i was like oh man that burned me up so bad so uh i ended up uh dropping out of school got my ged and went to work at wolf creek job corps it was the only job corps in the country that had a interagency hotshot crew
1: so let, let me call a time out real quick because right. well first of all for for those people who are listening who who didn't know that you're not supposed to uh spray a magnesium uh block and- <laughs> of fire with water um also, same thing with structure fires. You know, they show up and spray that with water. But with wildfires, how do you put out wildfires?
0: Uh, just, removing the fuels. Just removing the fuels. Yeah, literally cutting a mineral soil trail around it because to where you, it can't burn.
1: Because you don't have abundant water supplies out in the middle of the forest, so you have to fight fire with dirt by removing just hand fuels tools. and hand tools and saws. Yeah, you know, a lot of labor. Yeah. So for, for those people, especially in Central Oregon, who are who appreciate what the firefighters do, especially in the summertime when the fires come through, it, it's kind of a nice thing to understand the nuances of that. I, just, I, I had to throw that in there. A little, yeah. a little something for the, the, yeah, it's a lot the guys harder. and gals that are fighting the fires out there.
0: It's a lot more difficult than uh, uh, fighting structure fires because, I mean, it's, it's akin to like rototilling your garden from dark to dark and trimming blackberry bushes and You know, the physical output is so much more than structure.
1: But you also have the stress of a deadline because a fire is coming your way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You don't don't have (laughs) next weekend to get it done. Yeah, not to (laughs) mention it's, you know,
0: 300 degrees, four feet away from you.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Um, Okay, so, so then fast forward. So you were a volunteer for a structure department. Yep. But you ultimately ended up becoming a wildland firefighter.
0: Yeah the reason is is because you know and i kind of i owe a lot to my pops for that for making me sit there and watch everyone go out and you know uh, get wet in the battle but now that i look at it you know it's god the education that you need for wildland fire is so so steep i mean there's so much to it you have to know fuels you know a biology degree you have to know weather a meteorology degree and you have to know fire you know and that's uh, physics you know topography weather and uh, these fuels those are the three things that make fire behavior
1: and in fire behavior it's funny we the the term was always fire behavior as if it were alive as if it would would uh interact but it kind of does
0: oh yeah it's it's a creature unto its own you change one little part of those three uh, fuels, weather or topography. You change one little part of that, and that fire can go from laying on the ground to a completely crown-induced, you know, uh, self-supporting with a weather, weather system. system of its yeah. own. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we call those plume-dominated fires. Hmm. But um, yeah, after I started fighting fire at uh, 16, 17. You know, I hadn't turned back then. And my first fire season was, uh, you know, that 93, 94, um, you know, Cleveland fire, watching a you, uh, uh, a fire tanker uh, crash into the side of a mountain, you know, was a huge eye-opener. <laughs> this is the real deal right here. Wow. You know, and then 1994, uh, towards the middle of that season, it was actually July. I was on the South Canyon fire. And... Watched so many perish there and it was from you know our next door neighbors it was Prineville Hotshots, you know and it gave me an immediate an immediate respect for the wildland fire community and you know the the tactics and behavior and everything it's it was one of those things that I knew that this intrigued me so much there was so much to learn and I just couldn't step away from it
1: well, and of all the dangers that are out there, fire is only one of them. Uh, just a few years ago, we lost a, a fairly local wildland firefighter was actually a tree faller, and and you know the the irony is I don't think is lost in anyone, but a tree fell and landed on him.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, Mr. Hammock, you it doesn't matter if you've been in the woods your whole life or five minutes. You know, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't choose, uh, and it and it's. Some of the situations are so quiet and so, uh, what's the word, unpredictable that mm-hmm. you, you really don't know. And yeah. uh, that was that situation, that day, you know, a lifelong faller. Yeah,
1: you know? and and I and I didn't know him personally. I knew he was uh, quite experienced, but I knew, you and I both know, his partner that was out with him that day and and um, who was a experienced outdoorsman, experienced logger, exp- I mean – if you wanted someone on your team out in the middle of the wilderness, it was it was John Hammock's partner, uh, Jay Crawford and uh, and and even even Jay got got hit by a few of the branches and you know it, it's just one of those things where no amount of experience can prepare you for the no uh, I mean the random thing that happens.
0: You can be as safe as you can. I mean, I've had al- almost every year of firing fire. I've always had at least one major emergency room visit, um, whether it was from something falling out or a fall or something rolling down on top of me or, you know, even just trying to do more than what I'm able to do. You know, uh, there's sometimes where you just get so complacent that, you know, like ah, I could cut this tree from the inside out while it's on fire. <laughs> and, and And in retrospect, as you're sitting in the emergency room, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe
1: I should ask for help instead of using my can-do attitude. Right, right.
0: But, <laughs> so, you know, those are learning blocks. You know? These are
1: learning blocks. So so after watching people perish and watching planes go down, I mean, you, said, you describe it, the way you describe it sounds like a war zone.
0: But it really is. I mean, there's no uh, – I was hooked on the excitement level, you know, the adrenaline. Especially when you're doing direct line, you know, you're, you're cutting – A mineral trail um, a mineral soil trail right next to the edge of the fire line and you got helicopters that are dropping right on top you giant giant aircraft that are just zooming all over the place and you got trees that are snapping and falling over and the the sound of the chainsaws and everything is just so energetic and i was hooked on it i i really was hooked on it this was like something that gave me feedback instant Mm -hmm. feedback you know and gratification i can see what we accomplished Mm-hmm. yo um and it was it was as close to a war zone as you can get without gunfire
1: without actually being in a true war zone <laughs> yeah yeah did, were you a smoke jumper did you ever uh, jump into fires?
0: no the most i did was repelling um you know jumping uh, it didn't pay that well compared to what i was doing and uh, jumping was just for the sport itself you know um it was way more dangerous Uh, you know, it's, it's all kind of the same, whether you jump off a tailgate or jump off of a, of a airplane, you know, uh, (laughs) it, it really doesn't matter in the long run because it's only your experience and education that will carry you so far when you get into a fire environment. Mm -hmm. After that, you're just, uh, you know, surviving.
1: Gotcha. So how many years did you spend fighting fire?
0: Uh, overall, uh, I would say seventeen plus, seventeen plus, somewhere in that in that mark, yeah.
1: And and so you, you mentioned the education piece. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you uh, go on and get your master's?
0: Yeah, I was teaching um, uh, quite a bit. I took uh, all the way up to four hundred and ninety and five hundred and ninety in fire behavior.
1: What, what what exactly is that for the layperson?
0: So basically, you, when you start out with fire behavior classes, you have you know very broad and general scope. You know, just enough to, you know, so you can recognize what's going on. Further, you get into fire behavior classes. You start to get into being actually able to predict fire behavior. Um, if all of the increments, if your fuels, your weather, your topography, if all of those are staying the same, you can actually predict the rate of spread. You can predict the flame length. But the problem is, is none of those factors ever stay the same, Mm -hmm. but you can kind of have a good idea. So what, what the classes basically teach you and the education gives you is a worst case scenario. This is what the fire can do when it gets into the aerial canopy, when it's crowning, how fast it's moving. This is the worst case scenario. So we'll plan our day around that worst case scenario. That way you're not putting people in danger.
1: Did you find that, uh, that after all your time and your knowledge and education and teaching, did you find that a lot of the stuff started becoming instinctual?
0: Yeah. You know, when you can uh, put a mathematical formula, a nomogram that would fill a chalkboard, when you can do that off the top of your head with a pencil on a piece of paper in the middle of a fire environment, still talking on the radio, yeah, it became (laughs) autonomous. You know, (laughs) it was, uh, it was, it was perfect for me, you know. I thrived in that environment, and I really enjoyed mm. what I was doing. You became will hunting, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you like them apples? <laughs> yeah, and you know, I took a lot of pride in making sure that all my, all my people, personnel, and resources were safe. You know, they always came home at the end of the day.
1: So, what what were some of the um, uh, highlights and? Uh, lessons that you learned from your time out in the wildland fire environment
0: you know i'd say highlights is you know when i mean there's 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 so many like uh you know when we were down in oakland hills fighting the fire down there well i can't remember what year it was like 95 96 something like that Mm -hmm. and we actually used our crew carrier to plow a path through a parking lot uh, the, the vehicles that were People trying to flee. They actually left them in the middle of the streets. And we were just pushing these BMWs and these Lexuses and all these vehicles off the road. Um, uh, We were on the Missionary Ridge firing in uh, Colorado. And we got a chance to save the chuck wagon. Uh, It's this monumental piece of property there in the Animus Valley right outside of um, Durango. And, you know, it's it's, it's literally a landmark. And we were tasked with that spot, and we, we were able to save every single structure and all that kind of stuff. And then two days later, or uh, three days later, the owners invited us to come eat dinner at the chuck wagon. And they have live music. It's kind of an amphitheater style. Mm-hmm. And when we showed up, the whole town was there, and they were clapping and standing as we're walking in. They They, they, nice. they conned us, you know, into yeah. this little standing ovation you know there's so many of these little cool places all over the united states or even spain or australia you know that you go you and did
1: well wild, well then fire uh, firefighting down there too. yeah
0: yeah yeah the the fire whirls are backwards <laughs> sort of <laughs> like when you flush the toilet yeah
1: <laughs> yeah so so do you have to dig line from left to right and yeah right to left
0: yeah and you have to kind of make it swerve you know it's got an accent but um <laughs> No, there's there's just too many. You know, every fire someone earns their nickname on the crew. There's always uh, high times and low times. You know where you're just gritting for miles. I think one of the most uh, uh, proud things I've ever done was uh, got to be a part of the shuttle recovery. Um, oh, that was that was huge. we were down there in Texas and Louisiana. And that whole
1: which shuttle was this? That would have been. Um, Is it Challenger?
0: What was the other one? I can't remember. That's part of my head injury dealing with me right now.
1: Which we'll talk about that in a little bit.
0: Yeah. Um, But basically, yeah, it was the one that uh, disintegrated off the west coast and Mm -hmm. basically left a a four or five state trail of debris from Mm -hmm. California all the way into Louisiana. Um, That fire or that incident, we were working directly for NASA and FEMA. So you had something to put on your resume that not a lot of people had. And uh, I had, I want to say 60 to 80 people out there. I was a strike team leader, had uh, four or five strike uh, crews that were 20, 20 person crews. And everyone was really into it. You know, they knew that there was, this was, this was a military mission. You know, this is NASA is air force. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're, we're trying to resolve what happened here. We're trying to find every single piece of this spacecraft and rebuild it at Kennedy Space Center in Florida to be able to figure out what it is that happened. What went wrong. And we know that there was fatalities during this. There was military people that died you know, on the reentry of this. There's families that are suffering right now. And all my guys took on this attitude, you know, I kind of implored it on them. I said, you're doing something proud for your nation right now. It may be the only time you'll ever have this opportunity. So really relish it, take it in and be a part of it. And we ended up covering so much ground. We did a great job. And my supervisor at the time, he said, hey, uh, I have some VIPs that want to come out and talk to you guys because you guys are literally doing more than everyone else during this whole operation your four or five crews are covering more ground finding more pieces and parts you know and hard data for us Mm -hmm. so we have some people that want to come out and talk to you so i briefed all the crews that morning and said hey we're gonna have some nasa vips i don't know who it is or what they are but you know i expect you guys to be on your best behavior you know uh remember this is
1: and were you up to that challenge be on your best behavior
0: um me no, but I made made sure that they were. <laughs> okay. So the tall order, and we grab our sack lunches, and you know I get a call on the radio that these VIPs are coming. It was like black, black suburban, black suburban, black suburban. They're just filing, in. and they all pull up and stop, and you know I go out and introduce myself to these VIPs, and come to find out that they were four of the living relatives or spouses of four of the astronauts that were on the mission oh wow uh shawala uh, uh I, i'm trying to remember the names but and the astronauts so in because of nasa as an air force it's a military family it's just the same as any other military organization whoever goes up on a mission they have a buddy a battle buddy a another military counterpart of theirs that says hey anything happens to me you need to be the one that takes care of my family okay so every single relative or spouse of the deceased astronaut had their buddy another astronaut that was right there with everyone that Mm -hmm. was walking everyone around and it was raining it was windy it was cold and uh you know they said we just want to meet some of the guys and shake their hands and say thanks and you know maybe talk i said are you guys hungry and they said we're starving i said i'll bet you we can scrounge up some sack lunches for you so we're sitting in the rain in raincoats in the wind on wet asphalt all of us gathering around and you know i was so proud of the guys because they didn't say anything about you know (laughs) anything that was uncouth yes you know and the the mood was bright and it was cheery and it was jovial uh very relaxed and they were willing to sit down and talk with it was an amazing experience and we got photos and we got some trinkets, and you know those guys will take that with them for the rest of their life. So, Brett, I,
1: I need to—we've got a bunch of things that I want to talk about, but I, I need to chase this path down. Um, you started talking about, um, or you kind of touched on leadership, and even um, maybe even uh, helping boost the morale. Uh, you didn't talk about it directly, but but I want to ask you about that directly because I think that topic is going to. Fast forward into your time in Iraq, and ultimately all the way up to what you're doing now. What's your take on leadership and and helping control the morale and the uh, mental momentum of your crews?
0: You know, it's it's honestly leading from the front, and it's a do as I do. You know, uh, I've I've had the opportunity to work under a lot and a lot of supervisors, and I've kind of taken the best of all of them I know. Into this one little, I don't know, puree of what you'd call my yeah. leadership style, and uh, I'm I'm generally always in a great mood, you know, and uh, I think humor in the workplace is something that is indispensable. Yeah, it really is, and I always left my guys open to that. You know, we always had a a channel that was off of our. You know, division frequency that was not part of the, it. We called it our secret squirrel channel. Every crew really has one, and you know we would constantly use this secret squirrel channel, and uh, it would we would keep up our own weather, and we'd throw in jabs here and there, and everyone was called by their nickname, not their real name, and mm-hmm. you know it was a really fun environment, and I I made it my point to let guys get into it, just jump into the swimming pool. I've never done weather. You know, we have this belt weather kit that has a a sling psychrometer to be able to do. You know, they're very delicate instruments and it's a a complex little task that we have to do sometimes every five minutes or every hour, depending on the fire behavior. Mm -hmm. And everyone's mystified by it. And I just take a guy and say, here, take that, go up the hill, do weather. You know, well, how do I do it? You'll figure it out. Read the instructions. You know, immerse yourself in it. You know, the only way you're going to learn is by doing it.
1: And showing them the confidence that you have in them, whether they have the confidence in themselves. Exactly.
0: You know, um, chainsaws were always a big mystique behind it. You know, everyone wanted to be on the saw squad because they saw how much fun and how much reaction, instant gratification those guys got Mm -hmm. out of clearing a brush line or falling trees. So I'd rotate people out all the time. I'd say, you know, if the more people who know how to run chainsaws, the better we're off. Yeah. You know, if I have someone go down, someone else can take that place. So everyone got their, you know, fair time in every position on the crew. And, you know, everyone was really cross-trained and I gave everyone the chance to prove themselves. So, I think it worked out great.
1: So, now I'm going to use that to spring ahead. Um, and if we cover too much ground, let me know, but you ultimately joined National Guard um uh, and and therefore, um, the army that went to Iraq. And uh, when you finally came back from your experience, uh, you shared with me one day, I don't think I'll forget this that that um, you and your group, I'm not you'll have to fill me on the proper terminology, um, but you and your group, you made the comment to me that you didn't believe that you were coming back.
0: You know, it's it's kind of interesting because you when you get in that environment and you realize what the constant, consequences are of being in this environment and in order to be effective you can't be afraid you can't be scared everyone's going to be afraid and scared it, it, it doesn't matter
1: but fear is but, inevitable
0: yes it is but you have to compartmentalize it you know you have to put it into a sense because you know i prepared this mentally and physically before i left i had a will and statement i had all my stuff in storage i had sold everything that i you know there was nothing for me when i left it was all packaged and gone as if it was a funeral detail i literally left everything behind that way And when i got over there once you realize what you're doing how much you're outside of the wire, how much you're outside of your base, Mm -hmm. um, how much you're in traffic, how much you're in that scenario. In danger. Statistically, you know, (laughs) something's going to hit the fan. And in our case, you know, after the first few encounters, you're trying to digest it. You, You know, you're ruminating on this, you know, encounter that you just had, and there's no real way to explain it or... Uh, compartmentalize it until you kind of put it in the back of your mind that you know in order for me to do my job i just need to quit thinking about coming home because that's the only thing that is going to stop me so one day you just finally realize you know what i'm gonna die here in this sandbox that's 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 all i have to do
1: which that that statement alone is enough to make someone pause But you said you left everything uh, all ready to go in Uh, the event of your demise. However, you had a daughter back home.
0: Yep. Yeah. uh, She was, I think, uh, nine at the time, maybe. Seven to nine, somewhere around in there. Um, And, you know, that was tough uh, because, you know, there's a very large period of I didn't see her grow up, you know, through some of the most, uh, awesome parts of a child's development. You know, once you start getting into a teenager and all that kind of stuff, but you know, she was old enough and smart enough. She knew what was going on. Uh, you know, uh, so I, I, I really didn't think about it much. I just really kind of stuffed it away, crammed it down and, uh, continued to do my job the best as I could because, ultimately, uh, the people around you, their life really is relying on your life and vice versa. Because if, if one person falls short, the whole, the whole squad, the whole chalk falls short.
1: So what was your job in Iraq?
0: I basically went over there as a fueler, um, which is, uh, one of the guys that drives a big old four or 5,000 gallon fuel truck, um. And considering the number one cause of injury and everything else was roadside bombs, you know, I pretty much, <laughs>
1: yeah. You, you were, yeah. Oh, something's going yeah. yeah. to happen here. Yeah.
0: Something's going to happen here. And then as the war progressed, I, I turned into, you know, a gunner uh, running a 50 cal on top of a vehicle and uh, a driver. And therefore, exposed. Yeah. Uh, uh, a driver, you know, everything we had to do do basically revolved around a vehicle. And uh, whether I was in one of those, a driver, a gunner, or a truck commander, I was always on the road. No matter where you're sitting, <laughs> you're still on the road. So, you know, just due yeah. to uh, statistics, you know, I, I ended up getting hit.
1: So tell us about the IED explosion. Tell us what you remember. And
0: So it was a typical day. It was uh, August 11th of 2005 and it was right around 11 o'clock and we're doing our normal deal you know um you're kind of you know how like when when someone aims a rubber band at you and you have that kind of kind of wince you know Mm -hmm. you pull up and shrug your shoulder and you squint your eyes and you're waiting for something to happen that's kind of the attitude and the posture we have in some areas that we drive through You know because there's been previous you know roadside bombs or improvised explosive devices here we're going around this one section and we're all kind of poised at that point you know kind of uh, oh that's really gonna hurt and nothing happens and just as I relaxed and went six six feet off my door a roadside bomb that was buried underneath the fog line went off and I can remember the immediate smell of sulfur in the air as if, like, I lit a match right underneath my nose. Mm -hmm. And the sky was just, you know, dark because of all the dirt and the smoke and, you know, everything just kind of made everything dark. And it automatically filled the cab of the Humvee with all this dust and stuff. And, And that was a split second. I mean, it was a nanosecond. It was literally so fast um, and then after that you know it was kind of a, a myriad a, a hodgepodge of you know fragmented memories and visions and you know this sort of thing um, it wasn't until I got to Landstuhl Germany um, I was evacuated out of Iraq uh, to a main field hospital uh, from Iraq to Germany Landstuhl Germany and then from there I had uh, a couple procedures and then from there I went to Walter Reed and then from there I went to Colorado Springs and then from there I went to uh, Fort Lewis Washington um, where I was at the uh, medical center there Madigan and it wasn't until they got to I got to Madigan is where they figured that you know I had just too many inner injuries at the same time Um due to the blast i had a brain bleed which called which was a part of the massive traumatic brain injury that i had i had a partially detached right retina it had blown out my right inner ear Uh, i was at that time fully hemiplegic on my left side which was half the strength you know i couldn't couldn't support myself um there was just so many things going on at once that they decided that I needed to go down to, the poly trauma center, in Stanford, down in Palo Alto mm-hmm. at the VA. There, um, this was the first of its kind. It was early in the war, and I was one of the very first few people that would go into this program. Because the military is good at working at you know one or two injuries, you know, but when they all kind of coincide together and when you start working on one you have reactions of another and there's these systemic problems
1: and there's a term for what you had multi-system trauma yeah polytrauma which which is put mildly considering everything that happened
0: so i end up in palo alto and i have a team of stanford docs a doc for every injury so i got like seven docs standing around me and they're telling me they're, they're downloading me with you know what my diagnosis is you know They're saying, well, you know, we're gonna try and work on your eye, we're gonna do this, do that, and do, you know. Man, I was laying on that hospital bed, staring at the ceiling, not even looking at any of these people, telling me all this negative crap, you know, and I was just so mad, I was furious, and it was hard for me to communicate, you know. uh, My speech was really off, it was very fragmented, it was everything was just so aggravating and that was the first glimpse of my post-traumatic stress uh that was those really the first taste of this 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 demon uh we don't call it a disorder it's not a disorder it's not so i encourage people when they're talking about it especially to veterans you know that sort of thing if whoever's listening it's not post-traumatic stress disorder it's not PTSD. It's PTS, post-traumatic stress, because what it is is it's a very normal reaction to a very abnormal situation. Mm-hmm. It's what it is. You know, well, and
1: you, j- and I, and you and I spoke recently, just to touch on this real quick, you and I spoke recently along with uh, some of your buddies that we went out with that this post-traumatic stress doesn't just occur in wartime. Oh, no. It doesn't just occur with, with uh, uh, rape or violence. Uh, it doesn't just occur uh, with, um, with domestic violence. You know, I, we were, we, what we were discussing is that this post-traumatic stress can occur on a continuum. And your post-traumatic stress from being blown up and that sort of stuff is on one end of the spectrum. Someone having a really bad day because someone called them a name that's on the other side of the spectrum, but we all exist somewhere along that timeline or that continuum.
0: Yeah. You know, everyone's demon is different is what it comes down to. And, you know, if you were to take someone who has a very sheltered civilian life, you know, and they get into a auto vehicle accident, you know, or an MVA, that sort of thing. uh, That would be the most traumatic experience for them, Mm -hmm. you know, and it, but it, it wouldn't be any different than, you know, myself the problem i had was because i've been on so many fires and i've been on so many traumas and i've seen so many things before i went to iraq i had trauma upon trauma upon trauma upon trauma and you know back then they were just starting to you know realize this stuff with the government you know uh the federal government the forest service you know in the fire industry and they were just starting to get these things implemented like these, uh, you know, stress relievers or incident command briefing teams, you know, that they would come in and sit down and talk about it. And, you know, but by the time I got to Iraq, you know, there was a lot of stuff that happened around me where I saw others just fold, mm-hmm. suck their thumb. They're crying on the curb and they just could not handle it. And it was normal for me.
1: Because for them, it was the 10 out of 10 right, in their 10 scale. Exactly. For you, it was, oh, that's a 5, that's yeah. a 6.
0: I mean, wow, okay, I've seen that in a national park. You know? yeah. And then, you know, after a while, once it started compiling and compiling, it got to the point where it was almost irretrievable. You know, you couldn't put a thumb on it. You couldn't name it. You couldn't find it. So um, I ended up spending three years inpatient three years in the hospital down in palo alto with stanford docs and psychologists and uh these psychotherapists and all this kind of stuff trying to and i was really kind of um avoiding it not 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 necessarily avoiding it but i didn't really pay attention to it i didn't see the big picture because i i didn't have a lot of tact i was always very vocal uh I, it was it was like I was a child, I had the mind of a child. You know, I would just blurt out things like "No," you know, that sort of thing. Uh, the kind of kid that you want to spank, you know. Uh, that was me as an adult in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And these are telltale signs of you know head injuries with post traumatic stress and all this kind of stuff. Well, I spent so much time in the hospital that I had ways to deal with it. Um, one, of, one of the scenarios is I, they, they, It was my first day of physical therapy And they put me on a stationary bike And, and I basically said Oh hell no you know If I'm going to pedal I'm going to go somewhere I'm going to ride a real bike And they're like Well we don't think we can So I walked out And I got on Craigslist And uh, Mark who is the charge nurse There at, at the Polytrauma Ward He helped me get this downhill bike I bought it off of Craigslist. Guy showed up, delivered it. I saw this thing. I was like, oh, man, this is sweet. A downhill bike is this you know, super heavy 45-pound bike with like eight inches of suspension travel on each end. It's made for going down a ski resort in the summer.
1: So, so given the fact that you were in the hospital for three years with multi-system polytrauma, the best idea you came up with let's get a big heavy bike to just race it down a mountain yeah, yeah. i hope you wore a helmet
0: that's uh well you know it's funny you say that so anyways <laughs> <No>. <laughs> ah. pass
1: right on over that
0: i show up at physical therapy the next day and i'm like ta-da <laughs> <You know? laughs> i'm like let's do this and they're like oh hell no well i had a i had a helmet and pads and all this garbage on that they kind of found and you know they're and i'm i'm literally sitting on the seat i'm not even pedaling i'm pushing with my feet on the ground and i'm just trying to kind of coast mm-hmm. if you will yeah i mean i'm in training wheel stage and it was like balance bikes they, literally yeah uh and these lab coats are chasing me around and they're like pulling their hair out they're like oh my god he just fell did you hit your head did you hit? i'm like enough already i'm working on it okay <laughs> chill out <laughs> Well, you know, that graduated and, you know, I got more time on the bike, more, more, more. You know, my muscles were start, My depth perception was getting better. I was starting to see things before I ran into them. My balance was getting better because not only did I have a brain injury, but being hemiplegic, half paralyzed on my left side, not only being blind in the right eye and then deaf in the right ear. You know, these are huge balance, vestibular and depth oh, yeah. perception things. So... I'm I'm getting better. I'm seeing it. I'm I'm kind of compensating for all this, and next thing you know, I'm riding downstairs and I'm jumping off the loading dock behind the VA, and the staff are like, "Gee, you know." At this point, they're like, "Oh, whatever." That's just Brett. Yeah. Uh huh. So, I I I was sitting there and I'm thinking, I got a mountain bike that's never seen the mountain, (laughs) and I went to the round table, the group of docs there, and I said, "Docs, hey." let's go ride some trails and they're like oh boy (laughs) so they sent out a team to clear me essentially to where i could go out and i could ride these trails out near the va and uh as i'm getting ready for everyone to show up i'm kind of like warming up and these are some pretty good trails. They're really tight berms. They got mm-hmm. G outs. You know, there's some jumps in there. Mm-hmm. You know, they're maybe four foot high, but when you hit them at speed, you're, you know, maybe five foot high, but you're traveling like 40 feet, you know, vertically or horizontally. Yeah, we're
1: not talking Napoleon Dynamite sweet jumps. Exactly. We're,
0: yeah. Um, and one of the guys that came out with me was my military liaison. He's the guy that basically is a service member that works in between the civilians and the military he goes, man, that looks cool. Let me give that a try. And he jumps on that thing. And within a second, he folds like a lawn chair, and he breaks his shoulder. I mean, literally breaks his shoulder, crashes. And he's like, oh, man, I think I broke something. I'm going to go to the hospital, you know, a different one. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, they passed me, and I started riding trails, and everything was going good until I got passed by a girl on a bike, A, a little girl, a child. And I was furious. So I went back to the team of docs and I said, look, here's the deal. I got a race. I have a race bike. Let's race. And, you know, at this point, I kind of think they were either they, that they said, well, either he's with us or against us, you know, that sort of thing. We might as well go through with it. So the very first race I went to, uh, it was down near uh, Salinas and it mm-hmm. was uh, called the Uh, central hollow i can't remember what it was but it was it wasn't a big race you know there was maybe three or four hundred people there it was just kind of a circuit thing and uh it was pretty steep Uh, i mean it was it was some really intense downhill and it was high speed stuff yeah and i got this team of docs they're out there with lab coats and all the pens and you know stuff which stethical. is probably
1: different from everyone else's team posse yeah, yeah, right? yeah
0: but you know by this point everyone at the race crowd knows me you know because mm. they we all kind of rode in the same places and they all know me and they're like hey good for you miller you know they call me brett the vet yeah, <laughs> what brett the vet. yeah. and i'm like i could be most of these kids dad at yeah. this point you know and they're like yeah whatever yeah, you know, he's cool so i get up there at the start line and i launch off and I'm not even paying attention to anything around me. It's just straight tunnel vision in front of my wheel. And I'm, it felt so good. I mean, I, I thought I was on the money. And mm-hmm. I came across the finish line dead last. <laughs> and I was so frustrated. And I really was tunnel vision through the whole event. Well, I got back to the hotel, or I mean uh, the, my hospital room, and come to find out that the CEO of Fox Racing Mm -hmm. is in morgan hill uh fox racing is actually just down the street and they saw this because unknowing to me the san francisco chronicle was actually there at the race covering my story oh really i was on the front page of the sunday san francisco chronicle about you know me racing and that shows me there kind of hanging over the handlebars in the picture and there's like doctors standing around me at a downhill race and it was this giant box that i got from fox and i open it up and there's like two hel- i mean there's like 2 grand worth of gear oh in this my gosh. box full face helmets pads jerseys shorts shoes everything you know and it's all matching i'm like what and i grab this envelope <laughs> and i open it up and it's just a real couple short sentences and it says he basically said if you're going to finish dead last you better look good doing it <laughs> oh man (laughs) that was exactly what i needed
1: oh but uh knowing you as well as i do that uh that was just the fuel you needed yeah talk about fueling the fire
0: so i ended up racing out the rest of the season i went to sea otter which was right outside of uh um uh, anyways i i qualified for nationals and i actually went to nationals and i took second in the nation in downhill mountain bike as an inpatient of and the polytrauma system.
1: And this was just all part of your physical therapy.
0: Well, <laughs> I kind of distorted the way it was.
1: Uh, no, I, I know. I but know.
0: you know, this is where I this is where I came to realize it, you know, because I was getting done with all of my stuff. And you know, my post traumatic stress was so bad that I think a lot of the staff there just said, Well, you know, let's if if it if it helps, we'll do it, you know. But mm-hmm. right now with his Post traumatic stress, you know, we're just trying to avoid confrontation. If he, mm-hmm. if we can use it, you know, to, you know, help us, because the whole reason I wanted to race is if I can beat one guy, who is, younger. My age or younger, with no disability, I'm I'm on top. Yeah, I I can put a thumb on it.
1: And and to use a pun, I'm I'm sure it helped you exercise the the demon.
0: Oh man, I th- I can't tell you how you know fast my depth perception and my uh you know balance and everything was recovering it was it was unreal but before they let me out they told me they said we there's a giant elephant in the room that we need to cover and that's uh your post-traumatic stress and you are going to a six month inpatient lockdown post-traumatic stress clinic you cannot be released into the wild Until you complete this program, Mm. the minimum you have to be there is six months. But if you're not going to play along by our rules, it will last as long as you want it to. So I had to walk into this place that was like a rehab center on steroids. It was like walking into a prison. You go in the first set of doors, and clack, they lock behind you. Then you got to go through the second doors, everything locks behind you. There's cameras everywhere. We had to be woken up every two hours to make sure that we didn't overdose or kill ourselves. You know, it was it was intense. It was. And what
1: what demographic of people have to undergo this? Uh,
0: it was it was anyone who had, uh, a a, a post traumatic stress so bad to the point where they couldn't function in life without being involved into the legal system or getting arrested or, you know, uh, substance abuses, whatever, you know, it was, it was to where it was completely disrupting our lives. Mm. And the people that were in this program were Vietnam vets, there was desert storm vets, there was Iraq and Afghanistan vets. And they segregated females, and there was females that came over, not only just veterans, female veterans, but a lot of domestic abuse and sexual abuse, Mm. females. And they all kind of piled us in the same room, and the uh, facilitators, the the psychologists and that, they really just get the meeting started, and it was the veteran-on-veteran contact that actually was the clinic itself. It was actually the veteran on veteran uh conversation that was the healing process you know the the folks who were in charge of the whole thing they just literally set up and it kind of started the meetings off and after that all the all the uh, conceptual every everything came from each other, so it was huge
2: mm-hmm.
0: and by the time I left that place um, you know, I, I still have problems with it. It's it's not a general fix, but I've learned to do things because of other vets, the way they cope with things. Like, uh, one of the biggest things that people have a hard time with without post-traumatic stress is, like, say, road rage. Yeah. Um, you know, I, if, if honestly, if I wasn't or hadn't gone through that thing, I probably would have, you know, uh, been dead or in prison when it came to road rage you know i probably would have you know brandished a firearm and gotten to a gunfight in the middle of the highway you know who knows but some of the things that people do is they brought it up they said you know well i drive 55 because everyone passes you you know you don't have to wait you know for you to pass someone or feel like you're in a hurry i leave an hour early for anything the other thing is is you know, I spent three grand on a sound system, so I don't hear the traffic around me. I don't hear people honking horns, you know. And I've taken all of those kind of things and put it into one.
1: So it's not a cure. It's more of just strategies to deal with. It inevitable. is.
0: It is, yeah. You know, that's why when you see me driving around at 10 miles an hour through town with my stereo blaring, <laughs> <laughs> I'm oblivious to well, what's
1: going on around me. I'll, I'll remember not to point my finger at you when that happens.
0: You know, and another thing is, is you know, how to how to really kind of reason with it um one of the things that we were taught and it worked really well for me some of it doesn't work for other guys but was the ability to reason oh that guy just cut me off that's the first thing anyone thinks period Mm -hmm. but a a veteran with post-traumatic stress is you know, that son of a, you know, expletive, you know, ah, oh, man, that guy is out to get me. He mm-hmm. literally just tried to run me off the road.
1: Which, I'm sorry, you, you just mentioned that's what a veteran will think. But coming from Southern California, that's the normal MO down there exactly, as well. Exactly, exactly. And and, and and that's not just California. That's that's a lot of places. Right. And so these are strategies that anyone could use, it sounds like.
0: Yeah. So instead of taking that initial, you know, you're already on the offensive I mean, it's not a uh, the the reactions with post-traumatic stress are not a defensive posture at all. They're Mm -hmm. offensive. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to ram you off the road, Mm -hmm. and I am going to see what is going on with you. So instead of taking that posture, you start to think, all right, well, let's break it down. You know, and the first one on the list is maybe he didn't see me. You know, maybe he's a complete idiot, and he doesn't even know how. Maybe it's an elderly person maybe his wife is in the hospital about to give birth and he's trying to get there or, you know, you start going through these reasons. Why, why did he do it? And maybe he wasn't looking at me or even saw me at all.
1: Or maybe his wife is in the hospital because she just had an
0: accident. And by the time you get down to the third or fourth reason, Mm -hmm. you know, you start plugging these reasons in. You're like, hell it's over with. Anyways, he's gone, you know, so you're back to square one.
1: Yeah. So uh, real quick, uh, do I remember correctly that because of your biking success and that experience working through your physical therapy and and PTS, that uh, did you also become sponsored?
0: Yeah, I did. I I was actually, at the point when I left, I was racing semi-pro. I was sponsored by several organizations that, uh, you know, really liked my story and my drive, that sort of thing. Um, And I told them, I said, hey, I can't promise I'm going to win, you know, but I'm going to be the best ambassador for the sport as I can, and I actually ended up doing the most difficult race in the world. Um, the Wounded Warrior Project had seen what I've been doing on a downhill mountain bike and racing, and they said, "Hey, how would you like to do Race Across America?" And I said, "I'm, I'm game. Let's go."
1: And Race Across America, despite you know what it's called, goes from where to where?
0: So it's a nonstop full cross-country race uh, it's not a stage race it's start to finish it starts in Oceanside, California and the time stops, the clock stops in Annapolis, Maryland so it's literally coast from co- coast to coast non-stop
1: yeah, yeah, if, if you sleep, you're losing
0: day, night, wind, rain, snow it doesn't matter, you go and this group of veterans that I did it with we finished in seven days, two hours, we beat six other able-bodied professional cycling teams. Hmm. I mean, they did not even know what we were doing there. They're like, what are you guys doing here? You're not, supposed." you know, we figured you'd be the very last, if mm-hmm. even qualified, you know, yeah. halfway across. And, you know, we just hammered it and we took that military drive and, you know, we had something to prove, you know, quit babying us, you know, quit you know just because you know we've got some things going on you know we've gone through some injuries you know it was it was a a really a great point for us to power through this thing and show everyone we can do it and you know we created a record for you know a team like that and it was probably the most difficult thing i've ever done in my life physically
1: of all the difficult things you've done in your life, that was it.
0: Oh, man, it was this cruci. I had to train for a year, and you're on the bike in so many places. I mean, it's 3,100 miles. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, I mean, Lance Armstrong never finished it. You know, so, it, I mean, that, that should be able to tell you right there that it's yeah. a pretty tough one. Yeah. But, yeah, pretty proud of that medal and that jersey in the house. And not only that, but to be able to do it with a whole bunch of other 100% disabled combat veterans.
1: Is that how you got involved with uh, the Wooden War Wounded Warrior Project?
0: Uh, no, the Wounded Warrior Project was there right when I was in the hospital, and they asked me if I wanted to go on these soldier rides, and that's what got me into, you know, a lot of the uh, re- rehabilitative cycling clinics and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. And that was clear back in 2005, 2006, and. I've been with them ever since to where now I'm one of the national spokespersons.
1: Well, and that's, that's a story I wanted to talk about next too, is what, what exactly are you doing for wounded warrior? And, and I mean, obviously the wounded warrior is self-explanatory, but can you flesh that out a little bit more for those who, who don't know exactly what it is?
0: So it's literally one of the world's largest nonprofit veteran or service organizations. They're, uh, headquartered in Jacksonville, Florida. And it all started by a couple of guys that were watching guys come back on the news that had nothing. They were, uh, you know, being medevaced into the hospitals, and all they were wearing was a bed sheet. And they started building these backpacks that had kind of like toiletries and a little Discman and you know some uh, pair of sweats, some socks, and you know just little comfort items, and started doing this backpack thing. And now it's grown into. You know, where they have over 21 different programs and services that lead from everything to health, body, mind. You know, uh, they have uh, the track program, which gets you into um, training, uh, education, and then job placement afterwards. Um, the scholarships, they have, uh, you know, lifetime commitments to certain veterans that are, you know, so disabled that they, you know, require around the clock care rather than having to be burdened by the va system the wounded warrior project has picked up these veterans and their families and actually taken them under the wing and providing them with the care that they need 24 hours a day for year after year you know it's a amazing organization
1: uh, so the thing that that i realized early on as uh, when you came back and you and i started spending more time together and and, and and I started hearing these stories, you know, bit by bit, little pieces here and there. It became clear to me that you were definitely one of those wounded warrior vets that, by all rights, should be a recipient of these services. You were one of the guys that could have just signed up and said, "Here, yeah, you know, I, I want to, I want some help." But in turn, you uh, you started serving. You didn't just receive. You you turned around and started. Serving all these people that needed this help, how did that come about?
0: Well, you know, it uh, it really it really pays, you know, homage to the guys before me. It really does because you know, at there becomes some point where you feel like you know, um, you know I think I've uh, been on enough of these trips to where you know I really think someone else could deserve it or you know, benefit from it a lot more than I can. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the attitude a lot of these guys, including myself, got, you know, is, you know, let's let's start spreading the wealth here a little bit more. And, you know, that's when I, you know, started speaking for the Wounded Warrior Project and being a peer mentor and this and that uh, on the national campaign team. I wanted to give back because of what they gave me. hmm and you know it's uh such an integral part of reintegration it was it was unreal. I couldn't have done it without him you know honestly
1: so was it the just the sheer fact of serving others that that gave you more than you bargained for?
0: Well yeah, everyone gets gratification out of it, especially when you see a guy that's you know been locked in their home for the last x amount of months and you know maybe is, you know on the bottle a little too heavy the va's got them on crazy amount of prescriptions you know just Mm -hmm. ripping a guy out of the house and saying whoa dude look check it out sunburn what's up you know or getting them to some different state or some different place and having that guy work through some of the problems like airports airplanes taxi cabs being in traffic with another veteran who is like oh no no this is what i do this is what helps me out that sort of thing yeah, that was some of the nitty gritty stuff that I really enjoyed. Um, not so much getting guys, you know, helping guys out with trips or you know these are the things, but the basics, the stuff that really makes a guy come out. Those of
1: strategies shit. that we talked about earlier, right? right. Mm-hmm. So, so you became a, a spokesperson for the Wounded Warrior Project. You've traveled quite a bit, met a few um, celebrities in turn. Oh I, yeah, I think. Uh, I think, uh, one story that I, uh, I thought was kind of interesting that you shared with me is, uh, a, a trip to, uh, the Playboy mansion <laughs> and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and what a disappointment that turned out to be, <laughs> well,
0: you know, that was the Wounded warrior project was very different back then. And it was uh very, very smaller, you know, and, uh, Yeah, that was an experience. Uh, that was actually in May. I want to say that was like Oh five or Oh six. And, uh, I was still patched up from surgeries and went to this place and you know, I'm loaded on drugs. And the first thing they do when you walk through the gate is they hand you a cocktail and throw a cigar in your mouth. And you know, start filling your pockets with like extends, you know, and all this stuff. It's all promotional. Here you go. <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on here? And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, I'm glad I did it just to say I've just been there. See, just to say you've been to the Playboy yeah. Mansion. Yeah. You know, had cheers with Hugh Hefner and all these other celebs that were there and the, uh, the sights and sounds. It was just crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs>
1: So, so tell us about what you're doing now.
0: Well, you know, I kind of saw a gap, um, regionally, uh, over the States. We, the winded Warrior project has an office in Seattle and they have a a hard office in San Diego. And, uh, there seems to be kind of a gap there. And there's a lot of veterans in the Pacific Northwest and Northern California, Nevada, Idaho. And, um, so i started my own nonprofit. i started warfighter outfitters which is a 501c3 and i'm basically taking all of these vets in this corner of the country and uh taking them hunting fishing engaging you know on the hunting trips we get uh, landowner preference tags donated for cow elk and get mm-hmm. these guys out on hunts uh getting the severely disabled guys out on hunts that's great because uh you know when you get a wheelchair bound veteran uh to be able to get out in the middle of the woods literally and uh drill himself a cow elk and get a photo of that and mm-hmm. you know have a full freezer full of meat is uh, pretty amazing i take him on tons of uh fishing trips um you uh, you know as well mm-hmm. um do a lot of drift boat fishing trips uh, do a lot of lake fishing trips you know uh, basically wherever they want to go I'll take them Uh, I'm a registered guiding outfitter in the state of Oregon so I can take them just about anywhere they want to go to fish Uh, the guys really like the drift boat trips because you know you're floating down the river like a bobber getting to get in some rapids and have fun and mm-hmm. out in the middle of nowhere that's where these guys like you can see something coming a mile away yeah and that's where they really get relaxed and you know their guard comes down and they have they can afford to have a good time
1: so besides the fishing and the hunting and the and the meat what happens on these trips
0: well you know uh, one of the other aspects that we have uh, before we get- i get into that is our engaging uh we have these trips that uh that we like to say our engagement trips where they're like volunteering um we'll take a couple dozen guys to yellowstone every year and we'll rebuild the old corrals and cabins and structures back into the 1800s area Uh, a trip that we did in december is we took a dozen or so vets down to arizona to work with the border patrol on the mexican border you know and these trips are substantially longer Mm -hmm. Uh, they're more expensive that sort of thing and we wouldn't be able to do it with the help of our some of our donors um Mm -hmm. but like the mexico trip we do that right in december right in the middle of the holidays Mm -hmm. and it's a perfect time for a lot of these guys because you know there's a whole bunch of veterans that are single you know the war took care of their marriage you know they're sitting around the holidays are happening it's a good time for us to grab these guys throw them down in the sun let them get a sunburn you know and work in kind of a semi-tactical environment you know and it really feels like home you know it's it's a hard thing to explain for someone who's never been in war never been in combat scenario or even understands the 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 topic but for these guys they like it and there's a bond that they get with each other when they go down And that bond hangs once they leave the place. Uh, So you got guys communicating on social media and all this kind of stuff after the trip Mm -hmm. and looking forward to other trips that we're going to go on. And, you know, if I see it on social media all the time where, you know, two guys who never knew each other before coming on a warfighter outfitter trip end up finding out that they were like in the same unit or in the same AO when they were over there. And, you know, they get back on facebook and they see the pictures and they're like oh dude you were right there where i blah, blah, blah you know and yeah next thing you know uh someone's got a problem and there's three guys that are alumni from warfighter outfitters are on the trip and they're like hey i live just down the street from you i'll, I'll be down there to help you move in a, in a heartbeat or yeah. whatever you know that's the kind of stuff that really happens and benefits from these trips um the the, on the like the fishing trips you get guys that come out and it's really the first time someone has shown them, you know, hey, it's all right. So it's, it's all good. This is for you. This is my appreciation. They understand that. But more importantly, they the benefit that they get from it is to where they can actually let their guard down and chill out and relax, kick back, have fun and do something that they have haven't done or never have done in their whole life do something that they haven't done in such a long time that they realize, oh, okay, there is more than just hiding in the basement, you know, or drinking my days away, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And there's there's so much support from the other veterans that are on the trip too that it's just exponentially unfolds more and more and more and more, yeah. you know. to 10 degrees of separation.
1: And so with this uh, warfighter outfitters uh – you know, we put together a little video for that as well. And I'll, I'll link to that in this, in this, uh, podcast episode and blog post, but, um, excuse me, what, what's the, uh, the state of that right now? What are you looking, do you, well, what's happening?
0: Yeah, we're, uh, got a lot of support on the military side. Uh, you know, the veterans are all wanting to come on trips and it's just piling up on that end. And, uh, it's kind of short on the support side um you know we we basically need uh thirty thousand dollars and we raised about a third of that so we're in the area of about 20 grand to go
1: let me finish this vein of thought and then we'll we'll kind of double back a little bit so if someone wanted to get involved with warfighter outfitters either to go on a trip or if there was someone who just felt it in their heart to help you donate where could they go
0: Well, you know, we're on Facebook at Warfighter Outfitters. Um, We have a website, warfighteroutfitters.org, and we have a crowdfunding campaign that's on GoFundMe. That's actually gofundme.com forward slash Warfighter Outfitters. But if you even hit one of those three, you know, you can link to the other ones. It's pretty easy. We also have a YouTube channel that's called warfighter outfitters you know i'm trying to be as social as i can on the internet and you know get everything out there uh i want to be as transparent as i can as a nonprofit, to where you see all of our 99s uh you see all of our tax forms you see all of our stuff back from the states the counties you know the the federal gov just so our legitimacy is clear and wide open on the internet. Uh, anyone can view it at any time. You don't even have to ask us; just go check it out.
1: Excellent. So, um, so let's go back to uh, why you live in Central Oregon now. I mean, you have been all over the world, whether you remember it very clearly or not. But you've been a lot of different places. Why? Do, why have you chosen Central Oregon as home?
0: You know. Um, The reason I came to central Oregon in the first place or was always here clear into the early nineties was because it was region six. Uh, it was the forest services, wildland fire central. This is the hub of the West coast. Anything that happens in wildland fire happens out of central Oregon. Hmm. Literally everything. I didn't know that. Yeah. The region six cache is in Redmond, uh, the Region Six Training Academy is in Redmond. Uh, that's where the smoke jumper base is. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, some of the biggest Forest Service supervisors' offices. Uh, the stuff that we have here in, in Central Oregon dictates the whole region. So it's basically a hub for wildland fire. And I've always been here. Uh, you know, Redmond was too flat and too arid, and not enough trees. Bend was too big. And Sisters was just right, Hmm. you know, and which is kind of prophetic now because uh, Sisters is just small enough to where now post-combat I can live here comfortably and I know everyone and a lot of people know me. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's reversed. Everyone knows me and I know a couple people. (laughs) Um, It's kind (laughs) of awkward. So, you know, if I walk up to you and uh, I don't recognize you, take it easy on me. Yes. Yeah.
1: That don't make any wild sudden movements. Yeah. I'll
0: get you. <laughs> no.
1: Um how do you define and how do you live the good life?
0: I am. This is my good life. Uh it, I call it my second life. My first life was filled with uh wildland fire and military, you know, that was that was my first life. Some of the things in my first life that uh you know, I was, I was really arrogant. Uh, I, I spent all, all of my time on work. I was very diligent um, in not chasing the dollar, but chasing the career. You know, I wanted to get as high up as I can, learn enough, because it was, it was kind of a big deal to me. After Iraq, I had to let all that go. I had to leave fire which was very hard not only physically but emotionally it was very difficult for me to do leaving the military was difficult to do because i had joined clear back in 98 Mm -hmm. so i had to close out my first life i literally had to chop it off you know amputate it if you will so i had to decide in the hospital and as i was getting out what my second life would be and i took some time and i literally disappeared for a couple of years uh and just kind of traveled around the united states i went coast to coast three times and had the harley in the back of the toy hauler had my bikes with me you know i was uh, hunting and fishing all over the u.s living out of my toy hauler my fifth wheel for about two and a half years and I saw so much of this country and I met so many amazing people the places I've seen and gone and just the little hole in the walls that you stop into for a cocktail and a prime rib you know I realized that you know I have nothing to complain about at all and I'm not going to waste the time or the effort or the money that was put into me to be able to survive i'm lucky to be alive and no matter where i think my day is going or how bad it is someone somewhere has it 10 times worse than i do every single time every single day someone's always got it worse than i do so i have no complaints and it wasn't until i got back to central oregon to sisters i decided that you know i'm going hunting and fishing anyways and whether it's rain or shine i might as well take some guys with me and that's the good life uh i have no complaints every day i'm happy to be alive and a roof over my head a full belly you know um uh, I live in a sportsman's paradise. My 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 bills are paid and I'm helping other people see things the same way I am. You know, whether they want to or not. It doesn't matter, but at least I'm giving them an invitation or a peek at what they could be doing.
1: Then let let's uh let's keep that particular train going. If you had any tips or advice, or suggestions, not not just to disabled vets or anyone with PTS, however they got it. Um, and like you and I talked about before, people who just might be stuck in the mud of life. What would you What would you share with them with your experience?
0: Uh, you know, it, it it takes a while. I've been there, you know, feeling sorry for myself and you know, really heavy drinking or just. You know, loading up on the pills that the VA gives you or, you know, whether it is a substance or a mood or depression, you know, it it honestly knowing that someone else has it so worse or was even not around to even complain about it anymore. You know, you think about, uh, you know, the, the families that are without a son or daughter. Or, you know, how how bad your life could actually be. But, uh, you know, you're kind of just pushing it along. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to tell someone uh, when, when I'm in my shoes. But uh, when I find a vet and I meet a vet and I've been in that position, you know, I can say, hey, man, I was there. I understand. It's no big deal. I'm not putting you down for it. I'm just saying I can help you. You know, I can help you, you know, be clean. I can help you, you know, look at things in a different light. You know, be an optimist.
1: Well, let's uh, let's head into our rapid fire question series. Ra- Uh-oh, hold on. <laughs> you ready for this?
0: I'm prepping my grenades now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Incoming. <laughs> if you're
0: going to, I'll return fire. <laughs>
1: Fair enough. Touche. Pun intended. Brett, what is your favorite virtue?
0: My favorite virtue. I'd say that I just really like to please everyone. You know, I like to make them laugh. I like to make people happy. I like to give them what they want out of whatever I can give them that day. I'd say that's my favorite virtue. Then what is your favorite vice? Uh, my favorite vice. I'm going to consider a vice being a thing that's uh, problematic. So I'm going to say I have too many projects. I'll start a project and not finish it, and I'll come back to it later down the road. Uh, My attention span post-war is like, you know, super ADD. So, like, I'll get on a project and I'll start, you know, really getting into it, and then all of a sudden it's just, I'll wake up the next day and I'm like, I don't want to do that anymore. (laughs) 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 So, so I'll go into the shop or go into the garage and see something else. And I'll be like, "Oh yeah, let's, let's work on that for a while. But in the long run, I guess, you know, it kind of helps me be entertained because I have like 11 projects going on that I can, you know, depending on the mood I'm in, whatever project.
1: So what motivates you?
0: I would say my peers, uh, you know, a lot of the veterans and, uh, the people I've met through the years, in my second life, uh, I see so many people that have a whole lot more challenges than I am and are doing more than I am, you know, and that motivates me. That, that really does.
1: Then what frustrates you?
0: Uh, my biggest frustration would probably be the brain injury. You know, there's a lot of, uh, recall items that I have a hard time with, you know, I know what it is I'm wanting to say, but I can't, cough it out you know that sort of thing uh, generally my, my my speech is slower you know my thought process is slower um, there's times where I'm booking a ticket in the wrong month but it's the right day you know that's expensive mm-hmm. <laughs> to book an air, airline ticket a month early Yeah. Um, you know and all of that is due to the brain injury and uh, that is probably the biggest frustration i have
1: what guides you
0: i would say it's my moral values you know what really guides me what's right what's wrong what ethically is correct you know uh those are my uh guardrails of life
1: that's a good analogy what distracts you
0: Shiny objects.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's a pretty you know, well-covered well subject at this point.
0: <laughs> uh, oh, man, yeah. It's just, you never know. I mean, I'm like all over the place. Yeah, you name it.
1: So what inspires you?
0: Uh, I think we covered it a little bit before, the mm-hmm. fact that uh, someone always has it worse. You know, I have no excuses, none at all. There's no reason why I can't do X. Or there's no reason I'm feeling Y. You know, uh, that, that is, that's uh, inspiration on its own.
1: What is your favorite quote or verse?
0: You know, I, I read it once and I saw it once. And, it's a, a, and it was actually a Latin phrase. But it meant a lot to me because of my second life and the trials and tribulations i've been through it uh in english the latin verse said four wheels move the body but two wheels move the soul and the more i think about that the more it makes sense to me because i mean my recovery was really circled around two wheels you know riding bikes and then by the time i got out of the hospital i had you know gone cross country several times and even to sturgis on my motorcycle on my harley and you know i've always been a guy on a bike whether it's pedal power or not Mm -hmm. um and when you're on a bike gosh you got so much to think about you know you're just in the rhythm Of whether it's a motorbike or a pedal bike, and you're just clearing your head, you know you have all those molecules rushing around your face, around their skin, and there's just something about it. Whereas four wheels just moves the body. Mm -hmm. I, I I'd say that's my my favorite quote.
1: Interesting. If and let's we'll speak about your second life now. If you weren't a spokesperson for wounded warrior if you weren't a founder and CEO of a nonprofit what do you think you would be doing
0: um even in my first life if i didn't have to choose uh wildland fire or the military i think one one job that i could probably do for the rest of my life and be excited about getting up every morning would be like a uh, a game warden you know something in that aspect because uh the law enforcement community still has that military aspect to it Mm -hmm. you know there's a moral advantage to that job uh to where you have to make the right decision all the time uh and you're outdoors and you're dealing with uh wildlife and biology It sounds right up my alley yeah
1: what do you hope to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gate someday?
0: <laughs> well, he's probably going to say, Whoa, there's a speed limit back there <laughs> as I crash through the gates. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I-, I hope he says, y- You've done the best you could. You know, I really do. Uh, and-, and I hope that as a result of my work uh, down here, I hope someone else, you know, gets the chance you know, to be not, not necessarily saved, but you know, come out on the good end of things. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Brett, is there anything else you'd like to add before we, before we end?
0: You know, I don't think so. This is the most I've talked in a year.
1: <laughs> and, and you were coherent through all of it. I'm so proud of you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This early in the morning too. Yeah.
1: Well, Brett, thank you for being our guest on the good life central Oregon podcast. It's been a, it's been a pleasure hearing all your stories come out at once.
0: Well, oh, thanks for having me, Jeremy. I, uh, you know, anything for a friend.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. This is Jeremy with the Good Life Central Oregon podcast. Thank you for listening. Audio check. Testing mic number one. Testing one two three. Were you talking to yours?
0: Banana boat. Uh, superlative additives. Expl- <laughs> Checking and testing. My red door on my Jeep is not matching the red on my Jeep.